That's page 1,225 in the Church Bible, or 1,899 in the large print. 1 John, chapter 2. Some of you may have heard of the name of Colin Pitchfork. Well, in 1987, he became the first person in the UK to be convicted of a crime based on DNA evidence. He had murdered two people, and a man called Richard Buckland had been the prime suspect, but was innocent of the crime. And he was the first person to be shown to be innocent from DNA evidence. DNA profiling had recently been developed and it's now used all over the world to conclusively prove the identity of somebody. DNA is not just used in crimes, it can be used to establish parentage or family history. It was even used uh, in the last few years to establish the identity of a man buried in a car park in Leicester. Of course, that man was Richard III, who was the King of England. A DNA test can prove who we really are, but what about a test to find out if we really are Christians? What about a test to see if we are authentic followers of Jesus? Am I really God's child? How do I know that somebody else is God's child? Is there a machine that I can walk into and then come out of with a result to say Christian or just a fake or Not really, no. Is there a machine? Well, no. There is no machine that I can walk into and come out that shows I'm a Christian. But there is a test. And 1 John, this morning, in chapter 2, describes that test. Remember that 1 John, uh, as we've looked at over the last number of weeks, is written to Christians who have been shaken in their faith. They've been shaken by false teachers who have claimed that you need a special knowledge to know God. You can't really know God unless you're in the elite with a special knowledge. became known as Gnosticism. If you haven't got that, you can't really know God. And they taught that Jesus was not really God in the flesh. They taught that he was uh, just a man with uh, special powers from God, but he wasn't God in the flesh. And this shook them. And this is why John begins his letter in chapter 1 by talking about the word of life. Jesus is God in the flesh. This is why John writes that the rest of chapter 1 against the claims that these false teachers made. Claims that they could be in fellowship with God but walk in darkness. That they could claim to be without sin. But they couldn't claim to be without sin. He exposes these false teachings that these uh, false teachers make and were shaking the Christians. He told us that rather than claim to be without sin, we need to confess our sin. We need to trust that Jesus has done what it takes to pay for that sin on the cross so that we can be cleansed by his blood. 
In fact, if you just turn to chapter 5 and verse 13, you read the purpose of this letter. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, he tells us why he writes. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So I write to you Christians so that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes to them so that they will know that they have eternal life. Because they were shaken. They were wondering, am I really a Christian or are these these false teachers right? Now from chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, we know the truth of who Jesus is. We know what he has done. But what is that DNA test that shows if we have been cleansed? I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like I'm a Christian. I don't always feel like a child of God. Sometimes when I'm under attack from other people, and sometimes I read things in the, in, you know, in the media, or, you know, you know, and things make me question, is, is this real? Am I really a Christian? How do I know? Do any of you ever feel like that? Sometimes you feel, is this real? Am I, am I really God's child? Well, in chapter 2, John shows what this test is by contrasting what authentic Christians are by comparing them with the false Christians. So there's this contrast between authentic Christianity and false Christianity. And he does this in three areas. How they live, what they love, and what they profess. How they live, what they love, and what they profess. And this morning we're going to see the first of those tests. How they live. The first test of authentic Christianity is the test of obedience. The test of obedience. So let's read together John, 1 John chapter 2 and verses 3 to 11. And in these uh, verses here we'll see this test of obedience. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light, but hates a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness, and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. This is God's word to us. Well, and the word know, that's K-N-O-W, know, appears in 1 John 42 times. It's a key word in the book because John wants his readers to know God and it's comparing their knowledge of God against this false claim to superior knowledge that the false teachers had. 
He wants his readers to know God and to know that they know him. And the first test of whether we really know God is in verse 3. If we know him, we will keep his commands. It says there, clearly, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Come to know him is a description of someone becoming a Christian. I know I've become a Christian if I keep his commands. We once didn't know God, but we've come to know him. Now the commandments here, when it says commandments, it's not talking about keeping the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament law. The meaning of the word commandments here means all of what God has said. The whole counsel of God. Specifically the words in the New Testament. Especially what Jesus says. John is writing about Jesus. We know that in chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. And here he's talking of the commands of Jesus. There's two uh, words for commands that, uh, that the Bible writers use. And this one means the whole counsel of God. All of what God has said. So those who have become Christians keep what the Bible says. So does that mean then that the first test is that we're perfect? That we don't ever do what the Bible doesn't say? Well, we know that's not true because last week we looked at John saying if anyone does sin. He knows that we sin. He knows that we fail and that's where we have to keep coming back to our advocate who's pleading on our behalf and who, has been the, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So it's not saying we must be perfect but then what does it mean? Well, the clue is in the word keep. That word keep means to guard or attend carefully. It's like when you guard treasure and you hold it dearly. You're guarding it. You're keeping it because it's precious to you. So the, the, the commands that we're keeping here, we're keeping them in a way that they are precious to us. We don't read what Jesus says and, and flippantly just throw it out. It's precious precious to us. Someone who has come to know him holds precious who Jesus is. What Jesus did, what Jesus says or commands, they're precious to us. We hold them dearly. An illustration of this is perhaps a car owner. A car owner is called the registered what? Keeper. Now you know if someone is precious about their car. You'll know that I'm not precious about my car when you look at my cars. But they wash them regularly, they drive them carefully, they use them frequently and they can talk about them often and in very glowing terms. You know if someone loves their car. The car is precious to them. Now the keeper of the car... They might say differently, but they are not the perfect driver. They may even damage the car, but they want to care for it. They want to put things right when the car is damaged. Those who love Jesus hold his commands in this way. They're precious to us. Sometimes we may get things wrong, but we want to obey. And when we don't, we put right what we have done. We come to God and we confess our sin. But we want to do what God wants. We want to obey because the commands are precious to us. So this is not being perfect, but it is living lives that are characterised by obedience. That's the test. Is your life characterised 
by obedience to God's commands and with joy. This makes sense when we think of what Jeremiah in the Old Testament says the new covenant would be like. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 33, God said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So if it's written on our hearts and it's in our mark, placed in our minds, then as we read in John 15 about being attached to the, the, the vine, naturally we're going to produce fruit. If it's written on our hearts, naturally we're going to do what God says. That's the test. That's the test. If we know that we have come to know him, we will keep his commands. Assurance of salvation can be a very controversial subject. Some Christians will say that I've made a profession of faith. And truly the Bible says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It is true. But some Christians believe that if you've made a profession of faith once, you've, you've prayed a prayer, then you, you're a Christian. That's it. The job is done. Well, it's true that you need to believe that he has died for our sins and Jesus has risen from the dead. It's true that we need to believe that, uh, and, and pray that he forgives us of our sin. It, we need to come to Jesus. We need to pray. We need to ask for forgiveness. And it's true that we can have a sense of assurance when we look back uh, to that, that as, uh, as uh, Wesley writes, the hour I first believed. But if there's no obedience, if there's no following the commands, keeping what God says, then you have to question whether what you professed was really real. You have to question whether you have come to know him if you do not keep his commands. You cannot rely on a prayer you prayed so many years ago if you are not keeping the commands. Some Christians perhaps would say, well, I know that I know God because in the past God has guided me in a certain situation. Or in the past uh, I went to Bible college and I've got a, a theology degree. But if there's no obedience, if we're not keeping the commandments, then we cannot say that we have really come to know him, even if we hold all the degrees in the whole world. That's what John's saying here. It's obedience that is the DNA test of authentic Christianity. I remember um, not so long ago, speaking to uh, someone that came to my house and they were wondering about Christianity and they, they walked away from God many, many years ago and they said to me, Steve, I made a profession. Am I, am I saved? And I asked them, where are you right now? What are you doing right now? Are you following Jesus now? And sadly, they, they, they went and they haven't come back. And they're asking me, can I have assurance of my salvation. I, and I said, I can't give you that assurance. We know that you know him if you keep his commands. That's not an easy thing to say, but that is what John is saying here. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Well, Jesus then shows this DNA test by contrasting with the, the false with the genuine, what each looks like. So as in chapter 1, he uses this phrase, whoever claims or whoever says to show what the false believers were saying 
and then he contrasts it with what genuine Christians look like. And this begins in verse 4. Let's read that again. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. As we've read in chapter 1, John writes in strong language. He was called a son of thunder. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't beat about the bush. If you say you know him but do not follow his commands, you are a liar. That's what he says here. How do we know we are his children? By obedience. If we're not obeying, he says that you lie when you say that you know him. It's not about what you proclaim. It's about... How you, what your performance is like, not in the sense of keeping the commandments. It's not about proclamation. It's about doing, about obeying. Christianity is, is not an intellectual religion. We've said this before. It's, 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 a, it's a religion of the heart that works out in obedience. Now, it's not to say that we are saved by our works. We're not, we don't have salvation by doing but we show that we have salvation through what we do. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. A claim of knowing God without obedience to the commands of God is a lie and the truth is not in them. That's what John says. And Jesus is the truth. He brings salvation. John is saying clearly, you are not a Christian if you refuse to follow his commands. You cannot claim it. There must be an inclination to do right. There must be a desire to do what God wants that is practically worked out in our lives. There must be a seriousness about sin and a hatred towards it. These, are these things evident in your life? Because they ought to be if you say you know God. Well, what is the contrast with this, this false believer? It's in verses 5 and 6. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So the contrast is someone who obeys his word. The, his word is, is the will of God expressed. So we obey what God says in his will, in his word. It's another way of saying the commandments. John says here that love for God is truly made complete in them. The meaning, the meaning is this. If we love someone, we want what is best for that person. We give up our own will for the sake of the other person. And because God is light, he is perfect, there is nothing that he says that we, we, we shouldn't do. It's always right to follow God. Always right to follow his commands. It's for our good and his glory. And so if we really love God, that love is, is shown in its most uh, perfect form when we obey him. That's what it means. The, the, the love of God is truly made complete in them. Love for God is made complete when we're obeying him. There's no more complete way of showing love than when we obey God. That's the way to show, uh, show love for him. John Stott says true love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. He said something similar in chapter 1. If we, if we claim to have fellowship with him, 
and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So again, that person is claiming to have fellowship with God, but they're walking in darkness. They have high claims and low lives. And here's the same thing. I know him, they say, but don't follow his commands. They lie. But if we love him, we obey him. That's the, the, the way that love for God is made complete. And that's exactly, John says, how Jesus lived. At the end of verse 6, if we claim to live in him, we must live as Jesus did. Jesus is the one who prayed, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. Jesus is the one who said, I have come to do my Father's business. Jesus is the one who we read, learned obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is the one who obeyed perfectly, with humility, with joy, and with absolute trust in his Father's will, all the time. And so, obedience is Christ-like when it's obeying God. And that's what John says at the end of verse 6. How do we know that we're in him? We live as Jesus lived. We read it earlier on, John 15, Jesus being the vine and we are the branches. If we remain in him, we produce fruit. It just is natural, it comes from us. We will be like him if we remain in him. Now brothers and sisters, this is a hard teaching, isn't it? I find this hard because I know that I am not a perfect Christian. I stand here as one sinner talking to other sinners who wants to follow Jesus. But we should all be growing in obedience. We're not going to get this right all the time, but we should see a progression in our Christian lives as we become more Christ-like. And I see this as, uh, as I visit people who have been Christians for many years. You know those that have remained in Christ. You know them because you see their lives and you see their, their, their attitude and, and how they are, that, that they've followed God for many years. You can see it because they're Christ-like. You know that they've obeyed. And we should be growing. But as a test this morning, think about this. What is your response to the commands of Christ? To share our faith. To pray. To be sexually pure. To give of our time and our money. To trust God rather than to worry. To meet together as God's people. What's your response when we know that his, he commands we do those things? No one here should have the response of saying, well, I've nailed that, <laughs> I've got that down. But we should all be saying, I agree with those commands. They're precious to me. I want to follow them. As John puts this DNA test on you, how do you fare? It's a challenging question, isn't it? Well, John talks of obedience in those first few verses, but there is a command here that seems to rise to the top. And that is the other DNA test of genuine Christian faith in obedience. And that is this. If we know him... We will love other people. In the Bible, the word love is not an emotion, but a verb. It's a doing word. 
We confuse love when we think of it as only romantic or sentimental. Love in the Bible is action. So when you read uh, that great chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, that, that chapter of love, what do we read? We read things that love is and they're all things we do. Love is patient. Love is kind. They're all things that are to be done. It doesn't say love feels nice. Often, true love feels pretty horrible. Because it's not easy to be patient. It's not always easy to be kind. And the word for love here is the love that God has for us. It's a a self-sacrificial love that gives of oneself for the blessing of other people. And it's shown most perfectly by Jesus with his sacrifice on the cross. And so John introduces this uh, section in verses 7 and 8. He says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you had had since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So we know from the following verses that this command is going to be to love one another. And John says that the command is both old and it's new. So is he confused? Does he, does he know what he's saying? Has he forgot that he wrote verse 7 before he wrote verse 8? Well, no, he hasn't forgotten. Both are true. So the command is old. It's old in the sense, first of all, that it was in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, we read, Do not seek revenge. Or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. So in the very beginning of the law of God for God's people, the command is there. Love your neighbour. So it's old. But it wasn't just old for the Jewish people of the Old Testament. It was old for those that weren't Jews. Because Jesus had commanded it in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 39. In summing up the law, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Now by the time John was writing this letter, Jesus had ascended decades ago. Even that command that Jesus gave was old. And it was old in the sense that it was from the beginning, the beginning of the Christian faith. When someone became a Christian, the very first thing they were probably told was love. Love your neighbour. So he's not telling them anything they didn't know. That's why he says, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. They have had it. They know it. They know. Now if I was to say to you, Christians ought to love one another, none of you are going to go away today and think, wow, I've never heard that before. It's an old command. An obvious command. That's what John means when he says, it's old. And it's, it's the message you heard. You've already heard it. But it's also then new. He says in verse 8, yet I'm writing you a new command. So how is it new? Well, the word new here isn't new in time, but it's new in quality. So it's not brand new, as in I've never seen this before in my life. It's new in quality. It's not a command that's never been heard before, but there's a new way of understanding it. So, as an illustration to help us understand this, um, for many centuries, Egyptian hieroglyphics were not understood. 
There was no way of understanding what all the hieroglyphics in the pyramids meant. But in 1799, the Rosetta Stone was found. And it contained a decree from King Ptolemy V, which was in 196 BC, and it had three different languages on. One was the hieroglyphics, the second one I can't remember, but the third one was Greek. And so they could translate the hieroglyphics from the Greek. Now the hieroglyphics were really old. They were in fact very, very old. But for those that were studying hieroglyphics, they became new. They were understood in a brand new way that they'd never seen before because they could translate from the Greek. That's what John is saying here. He's saying that love is old. You've had this from the beginning, but it's understood now in a brand new way. How is this? He says it's truth is seen in him and in you. In him is in Jesus. So first of all, it's new because it's seen in Christ. Jesus is the the highest expression of love. He left the glory of heaven to come to a sinful world, to die in the place of sinful people that had rebelled against him. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John chapter 13 tells of how Jesus humbled himself and the the leader, the, the king of the universe, knelt down and he washed the feet of his disciples. He washed the feet of Peter who would deny him. He washed the feet of Judas who would betray him. He loved them. And at the beginning of that chapter, John writes, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's to the cross, to the finish. He loved us all the way to the cross. There's never been love like Jesus loved. And in that same chapter, John writes, A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And it's repeated here in these verses. It's new in him and in you. So it's new in in you because you've seen Jesus. We've seen this high love that Jesus has and so it's become new in you as well. As we are connected to Christ, to the vine, so we also love others as he loved us. Because we have seen Christ, we also can love in a way we have never loved before. It's new in quality. And this is a great challenge to us, isn't it? And as we will see in a moment, in the midst of, of this challenge, um, it, it, it's, it will find it's hard. It's, it's hard to follow. It's hard to, to love as Jesus loved. And we'll see that because that involves loving people and people aren't always easy to love. But we'll see that it's progressive. This love in us that, that is new is progressive. It gets more and more. And we see this at the end of verse 8. Notice this phrase. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. The true light is Jesus and he has come and he has shone his light in this dark world. And over time, as his return gets closer, the darkness is passing and the true light of Jesus is shining all the brighter. And one day there will be no darkness, only light. But its truth is seen in us because that darkness, our old nature of sin, is passing away. And as as we grow in our faith in Jesus, the light in us 
becomes bigger and brighter and we love more and more. And one day when Jesus returns, we will love perfectly. It won't be hard to love my annoying neighbour or uh, you know, the, the, the person that, I, that winds me up or whatever. It won't be, we'll, we'll just love perfectly. By the way, no, in heaven no one will wind you up, that, just by the way. But um, it, love will be perfect. And John, in chapter 7 and 8, introduces this theme of love. And in verses 9 to 11, he digs deeper into it. What does a false believer look like in verse 9? Because a true believer loves. What does a false believer look like? Well, anyone who claims to be in the light, but hates a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. Still in the darkness. Again, there is a claim I am in the light. I am a child of God. But if this claim is backed up by hatred, they're still in the darkness. Now, hatred is a very strong word, isn't it? And I think many of us may may object and say, well, I do not hate. That's a strong... I don't hate. I might might seriously dislike, but hate, well, that's a, a, a strong word. And it is a strong word. But the Bible teaches that if we do not love, then we are hating. There's only different levels of hate. And John, as ever, is black and white. You either love or you hate. There's no like. It's like he says there's light and there's darkness. There's no twilight. There's one or the other. You're in Christ or you're not in Christ. You're in fellowship or you are in darkness. You love or you hate. And as love is not a feeling, neither is hate. Hate is also an action. And the word means to to pursue with hatred. So, either by commission, with actively doing so, or by omission, by holding back what you should do to cause harm, which can be physical, it can be emotional, it can even be in our own minds as we think horrible thoughts of what we wish would happen to people. Or when we judge inappropriately. All these things can be defined here as hate. And if we live like this, and we even think evil of people in this way, John says we walk in darkness. John says that we can be orthodox in what we say. That means we can, we can say the right words about what we believe. But if you walk in darkness, if you hate in your actions, then those orthodox statements mean nothing and you are in darkness. It's very strong, isn't it? Very, very difficult But look at the flip side in verse 10. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Love here uh, literally means to entertain or welcome someone. Entertain or welcome someone. Now that's hard, isn't it? Because a brother or sister here is a Christian. And sometimes Christians can be very hard to love because the church is a bunch of people from completely different backgrounds, completely different personalities, that outside of Christ have no connection really to one another, and outside of Christ, if we're honest, we may never choose to meet with. But in the church, we all come together. And here we are, on a Sunday morning, worshipping the same God, so we have that common cause. But those personalities don't get left at the house when we come to worship. Those difficult things that 
we, we, we have within one another don't go away when we come in the door. Those people that we wouldn't normally not have anything to do with don't stay home on a Sunday. They turn up as well. And John says we are to welcome them into our lives. To entertain them. That's not, by the way, singing and dancing. It means to, like, to have them over and, and feed them and help them and all those kind of things. In fact, if I was to do that, it wouldn't be love at all if it was entertaining in that way. But if we, if we do love, then we walk in the light. If we do welcome, even those that we really, in any normal circumstance, just wouldn't have anything to do with, then we do love. We are walking in the light. And we do this because Jesus did so. And Jesus being the light, he loved in this way. Who did he eat with? He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He ate with the undesirables, the lowest of the low, the lowest in society. Jesus ate with them. And if we are in the light, John says, there isn't anything, he says, to make us stumble. Now, to stumble uh, is, in the Bible, to fall into sin. That's what the Bible means with stumbling. And the idea is, it's like a trap that's been set for an animal. And the animal can't see it because it's dark, and so it falls into the trap. And if, we're, if you're in the light, you can see the trap. Now, this means that if we love other people, it keeps us from sinning against them. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're walking in the light and keeping the commandments, if we take, for example, even the Ten Commandments, the, the last six of those Ten Commandments are all about how we relate to other people. Do not kill, do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not covet, and all those kind of things. Or covet your neighbour's wife or, or ox or anything like that. If we are loving others, then we're not, going to want to, we're not going to kill them, are we? We're not going to steal from them, we're not going to lie to them. And so if we love others, it helps us. It causes us not to stumble. Because loving others helps us keep God's commands. It stops us sinning against other people. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 13 and verse 10, Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. Those last six commandments are fulfilled when we love our neighbour, because we're not killing them, or, murder, or um, lying to them, etc., But, in verse 11, John goes on to say, if you're not like this, if you're not loving your neighbour, but if anyone, anyone who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Hatred of others causes us to walk around blind to sin. Hatred of others overtakes us and makes us unbalanced and stops us thinking clearly. Hatred of others always causes us to think the worst of them. And isn't it interesting, when you think the worst of someone else, you always think the best of yourself. How we're better than they are. We find fault in everything that someone does. But when we do this, John says, we are actually blinding ourselves from our own sin. We can be very good at seeing fault in others, but then we can be blinded by our own sin. Does anything ring a bell with what Jesus says? Taking the speck, the plank out of your own eye before seeing the speck in someone else's eye? It's, it's, it's here, isn't it? 
When you hate other people, it blinds you to everything else and causes you to walk and carry on walking in darkness. Love sees straight and it thinks clearly. Love thinks no evil. Uh, last year, I went on my own on a walk up in Snowdonia and I was going up on, the, on this ridge and all of a sudden, this mist came descending and I couldn't see anything. I couldn't even see my hand in front of my face unless I was really, really close. So I had to stop where I was and I had to wait for this mist to clear before I could see where I was going. If I'd have carried on, I could have fallen off the edge of the ridge. Hating others causes this mist to descend upon our lives and it stops us seeing the light of the Lord and the way we should go. And walking in darkness leads off of the edge of a ridge. And so I urge you to stop and to think and to wait for the light of Jesus, to open the Bible and see his light so that you know which way you should be going. And as a challenge this week regarding this authentic test of Christianity, it's to love those who you have a tendency to show hatred towards. Because none of us, me included, have this perfect. Now I might say as well, maybe wait until inviting someone for dinner. <laughs> you know, don't go after the service today and say, do you want to come around my house in a minute? <laughs> it might give the wrong message. But welcome people into your life. Do go and show love, even to those that perhaps you wouldn't normally get on with. At the very least, have a conversation and try and bring some encouragement. And when this is hard and you don't feel like loving another person, remember the great love that God has for you. The love that caused Jesus to come from the glory of heaven to come and live amongst sinful people and to die in our place. When I feel like I don't want to love someone or that I can't love someone, I open my Bible and I look at Jesus and I see that he loved me to the point of death on the cross. He loved me to the end. How can I not love others when Christ has loved me so much? And if I do not love others and I am showing hatred, how can I, according to this passage, even say that I am a Christian? How do we know we have eternal life? We will obey his commands and we will love other people. It sounds so simple, but then I suppose a DNA test is, in a way, it shows whether someone is real or not, whether they are who they say they are or who, if they are not. And if you're wondering this morning, am I really a Christian? The fact that you're even asking that question is probably a good sign. And my response is just follow Jesus. Keep following him, keep obeying his commands, keeping them until he calls us home and there is no darkness and there is true light shining completely and we will love him and we will obey him and love one another perfectly forever. What a glorious day that will be. But until that day, let us keep growing. Let us keep following Jesus. Let us be Christians who are worthy of the name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to finish uh, with 
first of all, a chorus. I don't know if you know it, but you'll know the words because they're from the Bible and we've read them. Uh, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. 